This week we're starting a new series, a series that I I hope will be challenging, but a series that I also hope uh, will be really life-giving. I've titled this series, Why Church? Like, like what does the Bible say about what should drive us to be the church? What should drive us to attend church? You know, why do we love to gather together? What's the point in our gatherings? And are our intentions around our gatherings, are they pure and biblical and Christ-centered? Or are they actually corrupt by our sinful nature, by wanting what we want from church? Like, do we have a a true biblically-based understanding of why we are the church and what the church is called to be? How do we understand these things? Or have we made the church to, to sometimes be something that Scripture never calls it to be? Like, have you ever asked yourself, why, why do I go to church? Why would anyone want to go to church? That's actually something that our culture has been asking for a while now. Uh, you know, I, I hear from friends all the time about like, why do you go to church? What is the point? You know, why do you try to get the kids out of the house, go through all this hassle when you could just sleep in on a Sunday morning? What's the point? I don't get it. Like I said, our culture has been asking those exact questions. There was an article in the CBC magazine and the headline said this. It said, from sacred to secular, Canada is set to lose 9,000 churches warns National Heritage Group. Now, set to lose 9,000 churches. Why? Not because of COVID-19, not because the government closed down or asked us not to meet or, or any of those things. We're set to lose 9,000 churches simply because we don't have any Christians to put in to those churches. Now, some will argue and say, well, those churches became not relevant and other churches are relevant and those churches are growing. But statistically speaking, in North America, that's just simply not true. The church is shrinking. Now, when I first began to attend church, now most of you know me well and you know that I really didn't grow up as a church kid. I didn't grow up around the church culture. I was in church a little bit in the Lutheran church, but when I first started to actually attend church on a more regular basis, I had one main motive behind why I was attending church. And it was simply this, a pretty girl. I started to attend church because I met a girl who invited me to church and I went with her because if you want to, to be in a relationship with a pretty girl and she wants you to come to church, well, you're just gonna go, right? Now, one of the things that happened was my motivation was to go with the pretty girl, but then I actually enjoyed the music. It was a Pentecostal church, and I, I liked music. I played in a band, and so the music began to be part of what I enjoyed about church, but it was really just an afterproduct. My true motivation was to impress the girl. Now, I, w I wasn't looking for new friends. I wasn't looking for a new sort of social experience. The social things around church just didn't attract me. They weren't the things that I was looking for because I had a, a very great social life outside of the church. It may not have been rooted in things that were healthy, uh, but it was nevertheless still a good social life. I had wonderful friends. But I liked a girl and I liked the music. And so that's why I went to church on a Sunday morning. And the fact is, had I never moved into something more than just those two motives, the music and the girl, statistically, 
I would have left the church eventually. I never would have stuck it out. I either would have been disappointed by the pretty girl, or I would have become disappointed and critical of the music because it wasn't what maybe I wanted it to be, or maybe I would get bored of it, or maybe I didn't like a certain worship leader. Whatever it was, either way, if my motivation to attending church stayed being about me, the pretty girl, and the music, I would have ended up disappointed, frustrated. You see, when our motive to attend church is is for the church to provide our entertainment and our social life, we will always end up leaving or always end up frustrated with our church. Or we'll get ourselves into leadership roles or have a voice where we're heard by the leadership to fight to shape the church into what we prefer it to be. And some churches fall into that trap where they become what the people want it to be instead of what Jesus wants it to be. So why do we go to church? I actually think that this is a good and important question to ask ourselves. And frankly, it's a question that a lot of my non-church friends ask me all the time. Why on earth do you bother doing this? The world's entertainment, the world's social life is far better than the church's. Now, you may want to argue with that. Maybe you've found a great social life and great entertainment in your church, but those motivations will never last. You will always be disappointed. So let me just back up for a second. I need you to understand a couple things about what this series is not about. This series is not about helping you find a church that meets your needs and that does things the way that you want them done. That's not what this series is about. We're not going to define what we think Uh, church should be based on our human standards. In other words, this series is not going to help you if you're just looking for a church that meets your preferences. And if you're not willing to take a step back and analyze your own preferences of church and your heart behind them, then you're probably just not going to get much out of this series. And so I got to ask you to really have an open mind and an open heart to hear what it is that the Holy Spirit has to say to you about how you, uh, your reasons for being motivated to go to church and what you think the church should be. Now, another thing, and I want you to understand this, this this series has nothing to do with COVID-19 and it has nothing to do with whether we should or shouldn't be breaking the rules around COVID-19. However, COVID-19, I believe, has certainly brought to the surface the many that, that many of us have a deep misunderstanding of the point of church and a really deep understanding of what the gathering of the church actually means. So essentially in this series, what I'm going to be asking you to do is to begin to think differently about church. Now, I want to start that process by asking you a simple question question. Which of these four things, now these are are four things that people uh, through polls and stuff have identified the church as. This is the main reason the church exists. So which of these things would you choose if you had to choose one? The church exists, well really it shouldn't, it's just a colossal waste of time. So you just think the church is a waste of time. Now, obviously, that's none of us because we spent the time watching this service today. But a lot of people believe the church is just simply a waste of time. There is no core root behind its existence. 
Or do you think that the church is a place for community? It's a place for you to meet new people. It's a place for you to develop your friendships and have like-minded friends who, you know, don't swear and don't drink and have good ethics and things like that. Is the church about you creating your social life, a place for community? Is that the core reason why you would attend church? Or maybe you think the church is a hospital for the sick. The problem with that is, is if it's a hospital for the sick, then where do the healthy go? Is that your view of the church? That it's a hospital for the sick? Is that your main motivation for attending church? Maybe it is. What about a shelter from the world? There really is people that believe that, a, that the church provides a shelter from the world. It provides a community that you can belong to that shelters you from the negativity and the sinfulness of this world around us. Which of those four would you pick if you had to define the church? Now, what if I told you that every one of these, at the core of it, is not what the church is about at all? The church is not about, it's not a waste of time. It's not actually specifically rooted in being a place for community. It's not rooted in being a hospital for the sick, and it's not rooted in being a shelter for the world. And the reason why I say this is because all of these different things that I've just stated can actually be replaced by alternative options in the world. Now, they're not actually the reason that Jesus built his church in the first place. Because these things can be replaced, like if you want community, like why go to the church for community? Join a bowling league, join a baseball team, join a book club. These are going to be like-minded people who all like baseball or all like bowling or all like books. And you'll be able to talk about the books. You'll be able to talk about baseball. You'll be able to talk about your bowling scores and different things like that. Like you don't need the church to develop community. The world gives us plenty of options to develop new friendships. And if you, you know, some of us would maybe think that the church is a place where I go and I learn the Bible, but then like I can learn the Bible through the internet on my own. I don't actually need to go to church to do that at all. So the core meaning behind the church can't be just learning the Bible because I can do that anywhere. And if the church is a hospital for the sick, like I already said, then what do you do when you're not sick? Are you going to be motivated to attend something when your perception of self is that you're not sick and you're not in need of a hospital? I mean, I only go to the hospital when I absolutely have to go to the hospital. So the church can't possibly be built on being a hospital for the sick. So why on earth are we here today? Why on earth did you choose to attend church this morning? Why are you taking this time to drink your coffee and sit on your couch and tune in? Because frankly, many have chosen to not even do that anymore. You see, there's a huge difference between the things that are related to the church. You see, a lot of those four things that I gave you, those are things that are part of the church but they're not the core root of who the church is. They're just things that are related to the church. They're kind of the after effects. And there's a big difference between what, what things that are related to the church compared to what the church is actually about. 
Now, if you were serious about learning about the church from the New Testament, which is what I'm serious about, if you were seriously wanting to dig into that, you would very quickly come across a Greek word that would become very common uh, in your understanding of the church because it's the way that the Greek text defines the church. It calls the church this one word, ekklesia. Now, this Greek word is not actually a Christian word. It, it started, it was a word that existed long before the church ever existed. As a matter of fact, it's extremely commonly used by the culture in the Bible to have nothing to do with the church. It, it, it's not just used to describe the church. So let me show you an example. If you opened your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, we see that Paul has gone into Ephesus and he's preached the way, the good news, the scriptures. He's preached about Jesus Christ to the people. And in verse 23, it says that about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. So this preaching, it's caused a disturbance. But this isn't a church meeting. This is nothing to do with the church. The people are now going to try to sift through the conflict that is happening. And listen to what it says in verse 19, starting at verse 32. It says, the assembly was in confusion. The assembly, there's the word. In the Greek text, what we've interpreted as the assembly is the word ekklesia. They were in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. This assembly, this ecclesia that they're talking about in chapter 32, this is simply a gathering of people. Now, it's going to help us to define ecclesia a little bit more if we continue on. Verse 39, it says this, If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. And so people are complaining. There's all kinds of conflict happening. And so one of the leaders says, uh, Demetrius actually, says that uh, if you want to bring anything else up, it must be settled in a legal ecclesia, a legal assembly. If we jump to verse 41, it says, after he said this, he dismissed the ecclesia, the assembly. Now, every time the word assembly appears, it's the same Greek word, ecclesia. So yet it's being used in a non-Christian context. You see, the word in the Bible that can mean the gathering of Christians, it's used that way, can also simply mean the gathering of people who have the authority to govern. The word ecclesia in the Greek could be explained in our modern day to be like the ecclesia of a condo board. You know, a condo board, the people who are elected, a governing group of people that have been given the authority to make decisions for the condo. This is the word that the church decided to use to define themselves, and it's actually genius. The early church uses one of the most common words to describe a gathering of people. They're a group in scripture defined by two or more. And so we don't define a gathering based on hundreds of people or 50 people or 10 people. All of those are gatherings. When two or more gather, it's considered a gathering under the authority of God. That's the way scripture explains it. You can see that in Matthew chapter 18. Now, being under God's authority is different than being a condo owner. The early church is essentially redefining what this word ecclesia means, but it's using a common word 
so that it can invite all people who believe to become the ecclesia. Together, not just the Jews, but anyone who believes that Jesus died and now he's alive. You can become the ecclesia. When two or more believers come together, they are the church. So being the church has nothing to do with location. It has nothing to do with a building, and it has nothing to do with individualistic thinking. It always has to be more than one. But it doesn't need to be 50, 60, 100 people. You can gather with your immediate family, and that can be church. So being the church, it has nothing to do with location or building or individual people. Ecclesia is this simple gathering of two or more, but it's two or more with a specific purpose. And this is how the church is redefining the word. And the purpose is not actually to give you what you want. It's to prepare you for what you actually need. Now we're going to get into that as this series continues. Now, being a Christian, we have to understand this. Being a Christian means that you're saying yes to some very, very specific things. Let's take a look at the story that, that the author Luke gives us about the history of the church. It comes from the book of Acts. But before we get there, you can open your Bible to Acts chapter 1. And we're going to get started in the first chapter, the first verse of Acts chapter 1. But Hans Krug, a, a, an amazing theologian, he said this. One can only know what the church should be if one also knows what the church was originally. And so it's important for us to go back to the book of Acts to see the birth of the church and to see what God originally made the church to be in order for us to understand what the church should still be today. So let's read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Luke says this, in my former book, Theophilus, that would be the gospel of Luke, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of of God. Folks, I need you to hear one of the most important things that Luke has given us here. He was dead and now he is alive. Jesus died and then he rose again. This is what actually drove the church to gather. It wasn't to make friends. It wasn't to have a specific kind of music played. It wasn't to listen to a perfect uh, crafted sermon. It was purely this. He is dead and now he's alive. And I got questions about that. And so I want to gather with other people who believe this same thing, who have witnessed this same thing. And if you don't believe this basic truth about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then like, I'm going to be really honest with you, and I'm not judging you or anything like that, but if you don't believe that Jesus died and he rose again, then you're just simply not a Christian. And that's okay. If you don't believe that, that's okay. That can be a work in progress. But in order to be a Christian, to be motivated with the right motivation of the church, you have to believe in this core thing. He died and he rose again. The early church gave up their entire lives for that one fact. Jesus died 
and he rose again. They were so convinced that Jesus died that they gave up everything in order to meet together to talk about the fact that Jesus was alive. And these are the things that he taught us. And so this is how our lives are going to be transformed under our new king, Jesus Christ. The early church people, they literally gave up everything. They walked away from everything because he was alive, because they believed that Jesus was God in the flesh. Now, this caused them to want to follow Jesus, to be shaped and formed by Jesus. So there's this key piece of transformation that defined the church. They gave up everything for him. And this understanding of God is the core of the Christian faith. And it's, it's the core of how we begin to follow Jesus. We give up our old life. We put on our new life because we believe that he died and he rose again. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this importance, the importance of the resurrection. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting down at 13, he says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You see, if Jesus didn't die and come back to life, If Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless, what we're preaching is useless, and our faith is completely useless. This is what grounded the Christian church. The hope of the resurrection is the central reason for their gathering. Your church meeting, if if it's lost that central meaning, your church meeting has simply become a ritual that is actually disconnected from the worship that Scripture calls us to. When, when, when our motive for worship is about the talent of a band or the kind of song or music they sing, whether it's hymns or choruses, it doesn't matter, folks. When it's about a feeling that we receive from those hymns and choruses, or if it's about improving our social life, or it's about dating a girl, we're forgetting the primary reason that the scriptures say we meet together. We meet together every Sunday, the first day of the week, to say Happy Easter every time we gather, because it's rooted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that we so, we so, we're, we're so blown away and we believe this so deeply that we can't help but want to be with one another around the same people who believe the same thing. You see, for a Christian, the resurrection literally changed everything. And we've given up our old lives in order to live under the hope of the resurrection. Now, as you read the book of Acts, because I'm asking you to read the book of Acts throughout this series on a regular basis, you'll quickly see that the early followers of Jesus, they gave everything up to follow him. They didn't just give up their Sunday mornings. They gave up absolutely everything. They walked away. They were like, I'm quitting my job. I'm selling land. I'm going to give it to the apostles so that they can make sure that we have everything in common. You see that in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And the reason that they did this is because they were completely convicted that he died and now he was alive. And think of how mind-blowing that is. When someone who you think is dead walks back into the room, appears for 40 days, and teaches you about the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus gives us a glimpse in that 40 days to our mandate as the church. For 40 days, they listened. 
They learned about the kingdom of God here on earth. That was what Jesus taught. He didn't sit down and teach them, listen, this is the style of worship you should do. Listen, you guys should do more social events so that you can be closer friends. Those are just things that happen within the church. They're not the core root of who the church is. The kingdom of God and manifesting that kingdom here on earth. That was what Jesus taught them for 40 days. But it's, it's really interesting because the apostles didn't actually grasp this right off the bat. We can see this if we go on in this book, in Acts chapter 1. If we move forward and we jump down to verse 6, here's the question that they ask Jesus right away. When he appears to them and he begins to teach them about the kingdom of God and he's eating with them and gathering with them, but he's always teaching them about God's kingdom throughout all of this, over meals, over fellowship, but it's centered in who Jesus was and the mission that he has for the church. Listen to what they say in verse 6. Then they gathered around him and they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that's a really important question, and it's rooted in what the Jews believed the Messiah would actually be, this warrior king who would recapture the world to make Israel the, the power nation of the world. Is that the whole point here? That the church was shaped to be the ones who are in power? You see, the, the, the church gathers with the purpose of manifesting God's kingdom here on earth and then sharing this kingdom reality with the world. Listen to what Jesus, how he replies. So they're saying, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel? Are you giving Israel back its power? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Folks, I can't speak to that enough. It's not for us to know because it's set by the authority of God, not by our authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my, this is what he says. So when you receive this power, this power of the Holy Spirit, it's not going to make you into this most powerful nation, not a Christian nation. What it's actually going to do is make you a witness. It's going to make you a witness for the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Folks, we are a spirit-empowered group of people who have given our lives to the mission of God. We are a group of people on mission. Christopher Wright, a brilliant theologian in the United Kingdom, he says this, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a mission, sorry, that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. The church was made for God's mission. I need you to hear that, folks. The church was made for God's mission. What is God's mission? God's mission, it's not about entertaining us. It's not about gaining more friendships. It's not about any of that. It's to reconcile the world to him through his son, Jesus Christ. That is God's mission, and that is done through us sharing the good news with others, that he died, and now he lives. And so we can live under him. When Jesus taught them about the kingdom for 40 days, he was teaching them 
what it means to gather and those, and teaching them what it means to gather and be those pointing people toward God's kingdom. The church is a group of people on mission, on God's mission. This is the entire reason that we meet together, to encourage one another on this mission, to center our lives in worship. Our whole life is worship, not just a Sunday morning worship service. In the Bible, there's no such thing as corporate worship. There's just worship, the way that you live. That we, we worship our, our whole lives, worship the king of heaven and earth. We say to Jesus, wherever you go, we, we will go. Our entire lives have now become worship, not just the music or gathering together. Worship is our central mission because it centers us into the one who is leading us into the mission. As we continue to learn about what drove the early church, what defines the church and who we're called to be, I want you to spend some daily time reading the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us the story of God's church, and it shows us who God is shaping them as a Holy Spirit-empowered, transformed community on mission for Jesus. We've made and defined the church in North America in a way that is actually centered on us. And COVID-19 has actually brought that out in a huge way. We we want the church to provide for our needs, for our wants, instead of being driven by the fact that Jesus died and now he's alive. That should blow your mind and it should drive everything in your life. This misunderstanding of what the church is, is it's deeply ingrained in us. It's super unfortunate. It's been like this for generations. The first 300 years of the church we're going to see in this series had this mindset that I'm talking about. But after 300 years, we shifted into a more individualistic, religiously free nation that pulled us away from God. Instead, folks, we're being driven by the fact that Jesus, we we need to be driven by the fact that Jesus died and now he's alive. My goal in this series is to strip down what we think is church and redirect us back into a biblical, Jesus-centered understanding of the church. And the reason I have to do this is because I'm called by God as a pastor to point you there. I can't force you to go there. You can have your opinions. You can choose what you think the church is for you. But I can tell you what the Bible says the church actually is, and I can point you there. In order to do this, folks, I actually need two or more to gather. Because we need to be asking questions. We need to be in dialogue about this. We need to be opened and feel challenged. And we need to just be honest about the things that I'm teaching and how, how do we or don't we live them. And COVID-19 has not stopped us from gathering as the church. Not once has it stopped two or more to get together. We can gather with our families, our loved ones, maybe a small group of friends in our backyards, whatever the regulations say, but they've never stopped us from gathering the way the Bible defines it. Whatever it is, when two or more are together, it is ecclesia, an assembly of people who have given their lives to be under the authority of God because he died and now he lives. So talk to each other. 
Be honest about your motives and why you think you attend church and ask God to help you to understand his mission for the church. Ask God to help you live your life on mission, to bring the world into a right relationship with their creator. Now, this is really important. It's important that we learn to be the church in the way that scripture calls us to be, not the way that we define it in our world and in our culture today. The only way to change is to get back to the root of why we exist in the first place. So be honest, be open, and be ready to be challenged. Because the church on mission is a people who are living their lives transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we, church, need to return to being people of the resurrection transformed in the way.